0: This is the first in a series of podcasts from the 2010 Generations of Faith program at Immaculate Conception Church in Akron, Ohio. Good evening, everybody. I am your pastor. Um, It is my privilege uh, to say that, and uh, I'm especially glad uh, that it falls to me to introduce Father Tom Tift, rector of St. Mary's Seminary. And the heir uh, to much of what Father Bill Jurgens did uh, in his historical research on the early history of the Diocese of Cleveland. And we hope that Father Tom will uh, get all the support he needs to bring out the second volume within my lifetime. Uh, one of the things that I remember from when I was in grade school uh, was the quote: ...from George Santayana, who said that those who do not remember history are condemned to repeat it. And so therefore, history has been my my favorite area of study. And the song that we just sang is not about a church different from the one that we are experiencing... ...but the same church happening to new people. And the only way that is going to happen is if we are capable, ready, and willing to share the precious treasure of our faith with anyone who is curious about what it is that makes us who we are. And history is one of our foremost allies in explaining our experience of Jesus Christ and how it is lived out in the midst of the Catholic Church. Uh, People like Father Tom Tift are invaluable in reminding us where we have come from so that we can better understand what's happening to us now and where we are going. And so it is a tremendous privilege to welcome from far away Wycliffe, the rector of the Major Seminary of the Diocese of Cleveland,
1: Father Tom Tift. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm very, very glad to be here, and I want to thank Father Michael for his very um, wonderful introduction. Uh, I'd like to invite him to the seminary and tell my seminarians that I'm a treasure. I'm not sure they all believe that. But uh, in any event, I'm very, very glad to be with you. And uh, I'm especially glad because of, um, and we've already mentioned a couple of times, Father Bill Jurgens was from this, this uh, parish here at Immaculate Conception. And uh, I had Father Jurgens in class. He also taught music. Uh, he was an enormous man, probably weighed about 300 pounds, 350 pounds. I was scared to death of him, uh, especially when it came to music because I could not sing. And I had one of the horrendous experiences in my life when I came to the major seminary. Uh, we were told that we were going to have a music test to see who would be in the choir Uh, Now, from the time that I was in first grade, I was placed in the back row of the class, which was kind of sad because I was the smallest, second smallest kid in the class. The one smaller than me was Mary McHale, who was a girl. But I was always in the back where I could not be seen. My parents never thought I showed up for those class productions at Christmas. So anyways, I'm going to go see Father Juergens. And I walk in there, and there's Father Juergens sitting there, an enormous man of about 300 to 350 pounds, 350 pounds. And he, I, I begin trying to get out of it by saying, Father, I can't sing. And he says, everybody can sing. Sing. So he hits the key. They go up the scale. And we go up the scale. He hits the key again. He's also smoking a big cigar. Uh, we, we go up the scale, he hits the key at the top of the scale, we go down the scale, he puffs on the cigar, he blows the smoke in my face and says, you're right, get out. <laughs> For which I was very grateful to do. Uh, but being able to come here where uh, he was raised and he uh, went to uh, St. Vincent, Vincent High School at that time, <laughs> and then he said his first Mass here on um, December nineteenth, 1954, and he died much too young. He died uh, at the age of 57. And so, uh, again, I'm I'm very pleased to be here for that reason, especially because of him. What I'm going to do um, is I'm going to talk about uh, the history of the Diocese of Cleveland. And I'd like to begin by just asking a few questions, if anyone might have any ideas. Uh, First of all, does anyone know how many counties are in the Diocese of Cleveland? Anyone have any idea? There are eight counties in uh, the Diocese of Cleveland. There's uh, Cuyahoga, there's Summit, there's Lorraine, there's Medina, there's Ashland, there's um, Ashland, um, I mentioned, did I mention Wayne? Wayne's in there, uh, and uh, I'm failing my own exam. Uh, I can't remember the last two. Lake and Geauga, Lake and Geauga Counties. It's, it's a rather large diocese, and we have at the present time probably about somewhere like about 650,000 Catholics in this area. might be a little bit more than that, but it isn't too much more than that. So it's an enormous diocese. Does anyone know when it was founded? No, 1847. We're now in our 163rd anniversary, and I'm going to talk about the founding of the Diocese of Cleveland. Does anyone know when your parish was founded? What year? 1923. Does anyone know who the first pastor was? Know your Father Waldyson. Yeah, Father John Waldyson. And I'll talk a little bit about him uh, today, too. Um, okay, good. I think that kind of brings us into what I want to talk about. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk about the history of the diocese, but I'm particularly going to talk about the formation of parishes and uh, talk a little bit about how parishes have developed in the in the diocese. I'm going to divide it into four parts. Um, first, I'm going to talk about the founding years uh, up to 1847 when the Diocese of Cleveland was founded. And then I'm going to talk about the early, early years of the diocese, approximately from 1847 to about 1910. And I am particularly going to talk about the importance of ethnicity, in terms of the formation of parishes in the Diocese of Cleveland, the importance of nationalities. Thirdly, I'm going to talk about what I'm calling the growth of territorial parishes and what we might call the initial movement to the suburbs, the initial movement out of the cities. And that's a period that goes from about 1910 through the Second World War. Uh, and then finally, I'm going to talk about the post-war period, uh, rapid suburbanization, the impact of Vatican II, uh, and the circumstances that called for great, greater, for clustering and also, uh, the effects of clustering as we, as we see them at the present time. Um, I don't know how fast I'm going to go. Um, and the thing is, I get lost, uh, when I start talking about this. And so, uh, if, uh, if we should have a break in here, uh, in the seminar, I have no problem with that. When we get towards the end of the class, students pack up their books, and I, I know the class is over. Uh, here, if I'm going a little bit too long in a given part, let me know, and we can break at that particular time. Um, yes?
0: When the break comes, six members of the uh, class here will stand up and sacrifice a goat. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'll know.
1: your place. Okay, we'll do it that way. We'll do it that way. Um, if, I, if it's like a Sunday homie where people fall asleep, then I don't have to talk too long. So we always know that's always a factor. Let me talk about the early period um, in in uh, of Catholicism in Ohio. Um, at the time of the American Revolution, and, and those of you who have ever studied Ohio history know this, Ohio was basically an isolated frontier wilderness. However, in the period of time from about approximately uh, 1775, To the end of the 18th century, 1800 approximately, you have a lot of people moving into Ohio. Mostly these are people from uh, New England. Ohio was part of the Western Reserve, and people were moving out here because they had the guarantee of free land. Uh, These people, for the most part, were Scots, they were Germans, uh, and they were English in nationality. You also had a number of people moving out from Maryland, But there don't appear to be too many Catholics who were part of that particular group moving out here. There were Catholics in Ohio, but they were widely scattered across the state. Uh, And uh, what what, what you saw was that uh, there, there might be what we might call a settlement, an area where there might be two or three Catholic families living in close proximity, maybe a few more. But for the most part, Catholic families were rather isolated. Uh, as they, they were spread across the state of Ohio. In 1805, uh, the order of the Dominicans, the order of the um, Dominican friars, opened up a priory in Kentucky at a place called, it's called Springfield, Kentucky. And from that, that priory in Kentucky, that house of Dominicans in Kentucky, missionaries started to come into Ohio. And they started uh, visiting Catholics in this particular area. In 1805, when when the Dominicans were starting, a man by the name of Jacob Ditto uh, wrote a letter to the first bishop of the United States, who was John Carroll. He wrote him a bishop, who was the Bishop of Baltimore, which um, was the the, the only diocese at that time in in the country, and he asked Ditto, or Ditto asked Carroll to send a priest into Ohio uh, to uh, to visit the Catholic families that were here. Now, Ditto was living at that time near a place uh, near Lancaster, Lancaster, Ohio. However, um, soon after he wrote the letter, he moved a little bit to the north, to the west, uh, where he, um, uh, to the east, pardon me, where he set up uh, his, his place at a place called Somerset, Somerset, Ohio. And a number of the other Catholic families that were living kind of close to Ditto also made the move at that particular time. So really, the first settlement of Catholics in Ohio was at a place called Somerset, which is in Perry County. Now, in response to uh, Ditto's letter, uh, John Carroll sent into Ohio a Dominican missionary by the name of Edward Fenwick. And Edward Fenwick uh, came into Ohio he looked. He traveled extensively looking for Catholic families. Uh, he found them, and he found this this Jacob Diddle settlement in the area on around Somerset. And from that time on, Fenwick was constantly coming into Ohio. He, he when, once he learned where Catholic families were, he was periodically coming into Ohio and he was visiting the Catholic families that were there. We have reference where um, Fenwick also made. Journeys into northern Ohio, and some of his letters uh, indicate that around the year 1818, 1817, 1818, he was visiting Catholic families uh, in the areas of of, um, um, uh, Wayne County he was in um, what is canton canton is uh, star county and columbiana counties he was finding catholics in those particular areas so apparently catholics were moving up north they were moving into this area where they were uh where they were they were settling. Like, and fenwick was finding these people there now what happened was somerset became the first center of catholicism and on december uh 6 1818 they 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 dedicated the first church in Ohio, a place called St. Joseph Church, which was located in Somerset. Um, As Fenwick made more of his uh, uh, visits to northern Ohio, he began to stimulate and encourage other missionaries also to start coming up north. And so we have a number of missionaries beginning to make their way up here. Now, let me talk just a moment about ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Uh, the first diocese in the United States was the Diocese of Baltimore, and that was founded in 1789. And Baltimore took in uh, all of the original 13 counties, colonies, and it also took in uh, the additions that were soon added on to the original 13 states. So that was all part of the Diocese of Baltimore. However, in 1808, the Holy See split the United States into four, into four more dioceses. So you have five dioceses in addition to Baltimore. And the dioceses that they created at that time were New York, uh, were Philadelphia, were Boston, the major cities in the east, and Bardstown, Kentucky, that took in the entire West. Uh, and we were considered, Ohio was considered to be part of the West. Does anyone, anyone ever been to Bardstown, Kentucky? Okay, uh, why? Okay, you took a vacation and passed through Bardstown. Gethsemane, to the monastery, right, which is very close to Bardstown. Does anyone know what Bardstown's famous for? Bourbon? Kentucky Bourbon. That's the center of Kentucky Bourbon. So the first diocese in the, the West... Uh, has its notoriety, not becoming for the first Catholic diocese in the West, but because of Kentucky bourbon. Um, what happened with Bardstown, they thought Bardstown was going to become the major diocese in what was called the West at that time. But Bardstown never grew. I mean, outside of the uh, distilleries in Bardstown, there wasn't anything else there. And so eventually they transferred the diocese to Louisville. Louisville became the major diocese, at least in Kentucky. So... Ohio became part of the Diocese of Bardstown, Kentucky. By the teens of the 1800s, uh, 1810 to 1819, uh, the city of Cincinnati had developed. And um, as a result, what you find developing in Cincinnati, first of all, it was on the river, uh, and it, had, it was becoming a trading center, and you find churches being built, you find uh, you know, a, a university being opened up down there, schools being opened up, all of these signs uh, that we would consider to be civilization, these things begin to take place in Cincinnati. And so the decision is made in 1821 to create a single diocese in Ohio. And since Cincinnati at that time was the major diocese in the major city in Ohio, Cincinnati becomes the first diocese in Ohio. And the one they choose as the bishop of Cincinnati is Edward Fenwick, the Dominican missionary who had been visiting up north uh, for many, many, for many, many years. What's amazing about Cincinnati? What does it have when it's founded in 1821? It has six to ten thousand Catholics widely scattered across the entire state of Ohio. Northern mm-hmm. Ohio in 1821 was still relatively unsettled although Toledo and Cleveland were beginning to grow because they were on the lake and they became centers for shipping. They were two of the maritime cities. And so you begin to see growth in those particular cities. But for the most part, um, northern Ohio was still kind of a wilderness. It was still kind of a wilderness. And so the missionaries from Cincinnati would now come up into northern Ohio. They traveled by horseback. Uh, they carried in their their saddle bag uh, a long black bag, which contained uh, the priest's chalice, the vestments, uh, the wine, the altar wine for mass, hosts, things like that. When they would reach a settlement where there were two or three Catholic families, uh, one of the younger children would be sent out to the other families and notify them that the priest was now present. And people would come; they would have mass, confessions would be heard. Children would be baptized, and marriages, if they had taken place, would be blessed. The priest might stay there for a couple of days, and then he would move on, and the people would not see him for another six months to probably a year. So it was still practice of Catholicism, um, you know, in terms of the sacramental ministry, was, was, was kind of sporadic in those days. Parents were the ones uh, who were the educators of their children in the faith. Uh, would be parents who would teach the children the catechism. Uh, And the parents would also be the ones who would carry on devotions on Sunday. Obviously, you're not going to have Sunday Mass, so they would have devotions in which there might be a reading from Scripture. They might say a a devotion to the Sacred Heart or to something like that. But you have kind of like these family churches that are gathered together there. And then periodically, of course, the priest himself... Uh, would pass through. The life of a missionary was very, very arduous. It was very, very tough. Um, and their travels were most certainly not comfortable. You know, uh, Ohio, weather, Ohio winters were as bad in those days as they are now. Uh, and Fenwick off, wrote that, that the priests used to ride through forests, where very often there was not a trace of a road. Um, they were kind of like trailblazing a road. Fenwick wrote how often at night he would hitch his horse to a tree and he would make a pillow out of his saddle bag, and, or out of his saddle, and he would hope that wild animals such as bear, bears would not attack him during the night. Uh, he would commend recommend himself to God, commend himself to God, and then he would fall asleep. In all of these travels, um, the priest had to deal with very the, very, the poorest of accommodations. Uh, at times, they encountered unfriendly people, uh, anti-catholicism was very strong at that particular time people were not very many many of the non-catholics were not anxious to see a priest. Um, they often went hungry and even when they would land in a settlement often they would notice that the people themselves were were, were dealing with hunger and so rather than eat the meals they simply would pass on and allow the people to have the meals and that particular, that particular the, the food that they wanted to furnish him. Uh, in addition, whenever they reached uh, Catholic families, they preached, they counseled, they administered the sacraments. They did it not just in settlements, but at times they did them in taverns, they did them in public buildings, and even occasionally they would conduct services in a Protestant church if that was being permitted. Their lifespan was very short. It's estimated that the average life of a missionary in those days was 37 years old. They would be dead by the time of 37. It was a very, very a very hard life. Uh, some of them died with shocking suddenness. Uh, for example, the first bishop of Cincinnati, Edward Fenwick, uh, died uh, of cholera in Worcester uh, two days before. Pardon me. He died, yes, he died in Worcester two days before. Uh, he had administered the Sacrament of Confirmation uh, in, um, in Canton, and he had come down through Worcester, and he died of cholera, and he was buried the very same day that he died because people were afraid of the contagion. Now, what really brings people into northern Ohio was the building of the Ohio and the Erie Canals. Has anyone ever seen any of the canals? How about school children? Have any of you ever gone and see the the canals? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, they're right here. Okay, wonderful. I didn't realize that. Uh, But this was what brought Catholics into this. And who were the Catholics? Well, first of all, they were mainly Irish, and they were uh, German. German immigrants, Irish and German immigrants. The Irish were trying to escape the poverty of Ireland. And even before the, the Great Potato Famine of the late 1840s, Ireland was a very, very poor place. And so these people were coming over to escape, to try to find a better way of life in this country. Uh, the Germans came over hoping to better their their, their position in life. But also, this was an age of German militarism, so many of the young canal workers coming over were trying to escape the German military. So they came over and began the work on the Ohio and the Erie Canals. Uh, in the 1820s, several Catholic settlements began uh, with small churches. There was a church dedicated at Doylestown in 1827, and that is the large. that is the oldest Catholic Church in the Diocese of Cleveland today. Not the building, but the parish is the oldest parish in the Diocese of Cleveland, St. Peter and Paul in in, um, in Doylestown. Uh, in Akron, in Summit County, we have references of several priests visiting here, for example, in 1826. There's a story of Father John Hill, passed through Akron, and he didn't find many Catholics here at that particular time. Uh, he also visited Catholics in Cuyahoga Falls, Peninsula, uh, and later priests from Doylestown used to come to Akron uh, on a sporadic basis to say Mass for the Catholics that were present here. But still, if Catholics in this area wanted to go to Mass with more regularity, they either had to go to Canton, or they would have to go into Cleveland, which, of course, was, in those days, quite a journey to go up to Cleveland. Um, I thought it was a journey coming down tonight. Uh, And and, and in those days, going up to Cleveland was just not a, a very easy thing to do. However, in 1837, there were enough Catholics here that they finally decided to form a mission in Akron. And the mission was called Saint Vincent's Mission, named after the great apostle of charity, Saint Vincent de Paul. And, uh, and the mission began to grow. And so, in the early 1840s, uh, a pastor was assigned to this this area, to Akron who began the process of building a church, a church which was completed in 1844, and that, of course, was St. Vincent Church here in Akron, located very close to where the present St. Vincent's is located, and that, that general area there. So St. Vincent's became the first Catholic church uh, here in Cleveland. It's a mother church of Catholics in, in Cleveland, in, in the Diocese of in, in Akron. What you see happening in Akron also is happening in Cleveland. The first church in Cleveland is built in 1839. It was called St. Mary's on the Flats. And uh, if you're familiar with Cleveland, that, what was a very popular area with bars and things like that back about 10 years ago, and they're trying to revive it again. uh, The Flats, that was where the first Catholic Church was located. Now, there weren't the bars there at that time, and God knows there weren't all sorts of young people there at that time either. Uh, But St. Mary's became the first Catholic Church in Cleveland, and that became the first cathedral in the Diocese of Cleveland when the diocese was formed and founded in 1847. Now, as more Catholics are coming into northern Ohio, Uh, The bishops who succeeded Bishop Fenwick, John Baptist Purcell, uh, begins to write to Rome, asking Rome to create a new diocese in northern Ohio. And it's very interesting what he points out, what should be the sea city, the major city. And he points to Toledo, uh, Sandusky, um, Cleveland, or Ashtabula. Uh, Those were the maritime cities, Those were the cities where there was some degree of shipping, and it was thought that these were the cities that would have the greatest growth. So in 1840, Purcell is writing to Rome saying, we need a diocese in northern Ohio. Well, you know, they say Rome moves slowly, and that was very true in this case. Uh, Rome Rome moved seven years later. And on April 23, 1847, uh, Rome created the Diocese of Cleveland, in a bull entitled Kumenstattu, Ohio, since in the state of Ohio there's been greater growth. Um, the boundaries of the diocese are rather interesting. The Diocese of Cleveland, and they named it after Cleveland. Cleveland was chosen as a sea city. The Diocese of Cleveland took in uh, everything to the north of the line 40 degrees and 41 minutes, and that would go from the Indiana border on the west and the Ohio or the uh, Pennsylvania border on the east, all of that land was part of the original diocese of Cleveland. Now, from this original diocese, two more dioceses would eventually be created: uh, Toledo in 1910 and Youngstown in 1943. In this massive area, there were 10,000 Catholics, widely scattered across uh, northern Ohio. Now, what's interesting is the uh, the boundary line. Um, Rome did not have any concept of the state of Ohio. So what they did is they they had a map, and they took a line, and they drew the line through what they thought was the middle of the map of the state of Ohio. Now, the problem with the line was that it went through the middle of counties, it went through the middle of cities, and in one case, it went through the middle of a house. So if you were on this side of the house, you were in Cincinnati. If you were on that side of the house, you were in Cleveland. Uh, the two bishops uh, very quickly got together and adjusted the boundaries according to the counties. Uh, but that was the original boundary of the Diocese of Cleveland. The first bishop was a man by the name of Louis Amadeus Rapp. And Bishop Rapp is was an amazing man in so many ways. Um First of all, when you talk about Bishop Repp, he was born in France in a little town called Aude Hadron back in 1801. And he was the youngest boy in a family of ten children. Uh, Now, because he was the youngest boy, um, the youngest boy was considered to be the one who would stay with the parents and who would assist the parents uh, as they grew older and who basically, if they were farmers, would run the family farm. So because of the fact that Rapp was the youngest boy, he was the one given the responsibility of caring for the parents. And therefore, as a result of that, his education was somewhat neglected. After all, what what does he need to study all of these technical subjects for? He's going to be a farmer. And you know, outside of learning basic mathematics uh, connected with selling farm produce, why does he need an extensive education? So he does not receive much of an education as a child. However, Rapp decides that he wants to be a priest, and his parents encourage him in that. And, but the problem was, uh, and Rapp is making this decision when he's about 19 or 20 years old, and the problem is he doesn't have the education, and he, above all, doesn't have Latin. And in those days, you needed Latin to be a priest. So what does Rap do? He goes back to school. He sits with kids who are anywhere from 10 to 12 years younger than him, And he learns the basic education, and he learns Latin. And that was very indicative of of Bishop Rapp. Um, He was finally ordained in 1829. He was assigned to two parishes in uh, the diocese that he was in. And then in 1834, he is assigned as a chaplain of the Ursuline Convent at a place called boulogne sur mer uh, and that will be a very, very important assignment for Bishop Rapp because one of the first things that he will do when he becomes bishop, he will invite the Ursulines to send sisters over here. And in the Diocese of Cleveland, especially up in uh, the north, the Ursulines have had a major role in terms of the educational system of the diocese. Now, Rapp was always interested in the missions, and, uh, you, you know, it, it's so very interesting today we... Um, uh, we receive missionary priests and bishops today telling us about their diocese, asking us to make a contribution. One of my favorite missionary stories, when I was first ordained, uh, the parish I was at, we had an African bishop and who came to give the missionary appeal. And, so, and his appeal was, I think, the best appeal I ever heard. Uh, at the time for giving the appeal at the homily, he got up to the microphone, he said, I need money. You have money. Give and sat down. (laughs) He received the largest amount of money that any missionary priest ever got in in the parish. But but in those days, it was the American bishops who were going over to Europe and begging for money. And so, in the course of the the um, in the course of while Rapp was at Boulogne somewhere at the convent, uh, Purcell happened to pass through the town begging for money for his new Diocese of Cincinnati. And he talks to Rapp about missionary work in Cincinnati. Uh, And Rapp agrees that he will go to Cincinnati as a missionary. Now, realize what this meant. Rapp was 39 years old. He was no youngster, and that was considered to be relatively old at that time. Um, He knew no English, absolutely no English. He's leaving his family. He's leaving his culture. He's leaving uh, all of his friends, and he's going over to Cincinnati, which he knew almost nothing about, to serve as a missionary. And uh, he thought he was going over to work among the Native Americans because he thought they were still in Cincinnati. Uh, And, of course, there are no Native Americans in Cincinnati. There were very, very few at that time. But Rapp makes that sacrifice, and that would be uh, very typical of Bishop Rapp during his early years. Uh, during his years as Bishop of Cleveland. Um, when Rapp gets over to Cincinnati, he learns a little English, and he's sent to Toledo. And he works in Toledo among the uh, canal workers. And that is, there's all sorts of problems, moral problems with canal workers. Obviously, many of them are away from their families. Uh, they're living in very dire situations. They not don't have much money. There's great alcoholism. Uh, and Rapp works in that, and he is a magnificent missionary. At the end of his life, when Rapp will resign the Diocese of Cleveland in 1870, he will go back to to the life of a missionary. He will go to Maine, uh, where he will serve, or pardon me, Vermont, where he will serve among the French Canadians uh, who were coming down into that area and settling there. He returned to the life of a missionary. Okay, so that's a little bit about the first stage of, of the history. Let me just talk about the uh, early development of the uh, diocese, and then we'll pr- probably take a break at that point um, in considering the history of the Diocese of Cleveland, uh, one thing that has to be said and the prayer that we use tonight said this very well is that uh, the most obvious fact about this diocese is that we have always been a church of immigrants um, and um, There is tremendous diversity in this diocese among the different ethnic groups. Uh, When the diocese first began, the two primary groups were the Irish and the Germans. Uh, The Irish were primarily in the larger cities where they would serve as the kind of the grunt force for developing industry. In Cleveland, it was in the steel mills. Here in Akron, it would be in the rubber factories. Uh, The Irish got very much involved in that, in that, that kind of work. The Irish, by and large, did not settle in the rural areas. They wanted nothing to do with potatoes, okay? They'd had it with with farming. The Germans, however, um, settled not only in the cities where many of the Germans had certain skills. uh, You know, the higher educational level in Germany gave them certain skills, but they also settled in the rural areas. For example, one of the interesting things is that... um, In Summit County, there are a large number of German families that settled here. But what's interesting, in Akron, it was predominantly Irish, at least initially, that settled in Akron. But the rest of Summit County was primarily Germans, especially in Lorraine County. You had more uh, German families that settled there, most of whom are still there. Uh, You go out to Lorraine County, you'll come across families that have been there for a couple of hundred years. Uh, So the Germans were both in the cities. They were also in the rural areas. After 1880, a newer type of immigrant began to come into the uh, the diocese and into this part of northern Ohio. And these were what were called the newer immigrants, and they were people from southern and eastern Europe. It's at this time when the Slovaks, the Slovenes, uh, the Italians, the Poles, the Hungarians, the Croatians, the Russians, and, and a sizable Jewish population come into this, this part of Ohio Uh, in in this, this onslaught. And this was a tremendous ministerial challenge to the Diocese of Cleveland because, first of all, many of these people were Catholic uh, we had no priest and religious who were able to minister them. Nobody who knew the language. We didn't have any sisters who could could ed- run the schools and, and educate the children, and a number of them were Eastern Rite Catholics. They were Byzantine Catholics. They were not even Roman Catholics. They were Catholics in union with the Pope, but they were of a different different rite. They were of a different uh, different uh, ecclesiastical rite. Now, these different ethnic groups have a tremendous influence. And how parishes are formed in the Diocese of Cleveland. You know, if you stop and think about it, for Catholics, uh, the parish, uh, the local community, is really the center of religious activity. Uh, it's here that the sacred liturgy takes place, that the sacraments are administered, uh, that religious education takes place, whether in a school or whether it is in a PSR program. And parishes are communities of faith, where the faith of the people is nourished and is strengthened. One of the interesting things is, though, that that in the correspondence of the first two bishops, and really even the third bishop, Bishop Horseman, um, there is no reference to a parish. Uh, bishop Rapp served until eighteen seventy. Bishop Gilmore from eighteen seventy two to eighteen ninety one, and Bishop Horseman from ninety one to nineteen o eight. In in their correspondence, there is Almost no reference to a parish. What they always talk about are congregations, because that's what they were dealing with. They were dealing with groups of people who were banding together and forming some kind of a community and then asking the bishop to send them a priest. And when he sent them a priest, that was considered to be an official worshiping body in the Diocese of Cleveland. Now, what's interesting about it, you know, that's, that's totally foreign to us. It's, it's always the diocesan administration that sets up the parish, sets up the parish boundaries. But that, that was not how parishes started originally. Uh, it was people coming together, forming a community, asking for a priest, and when the priest is given, that's considered to be an official worshiping body in the Diocese of Cleveland. Now, what brought people together? In, in the rural areas, it was location. Um, you know, there weren't enough Catholics to build more than one church so everybody had to cooperate together regardless of their nationality so people were brought together because of their location however in the cities the development is different the development is along nationality lines um, it's only in uh, 1909 when Bishop John Fairley comes to Cleveland that you begin to see the diocesan administration taking over the establishment of parishes But up to then, it was the people themselves forming parishes. Now, what's interesting is, almost from the very beginning, the Germans and the Irish did not want to worship together. Uh, As we're going to see, there was a great deal of tension between the Germans and the Irish. Uh, The Germans particularly wanted parishes of their own because they wanted to carry on the traditions of the old country. They wanted to hear sermons in German. They wanted to hear... Uh, they wanted to have those sadalities ser- those, uh, that they knew in the old country. They wanted to carry on the traditions, the devotions that were so very much a part of their nationality. Um, and so what happens is uh, rap originally rejects that. Because he, he wants, he's an American. He says, we're all American. If we perpetuate nationality parishes, we'll never be accepted as Americans. So he doesn't like that. But eventually, the Germans wear him down. Germans are very persistent people. And they wear him down. And he agrees to German parishes. And of course, the first German parish here in Akron was St. Bernard's, which was formed in 1861. And in Cleveland, a number of German parishes developed. Um, so that was the way they tried to deal with Now, what that causes, uh, and it's an interesting phenomenon, because we're constructing parishes according to nationalities, that causes parishes to be built on top of one another. Uh, let me give you an example. I'm taking it from Cleveland because you didn't have this so much down in Akron. But uh, the, the, the example I want to use is Superior Avenue in Cleveland. Um, at East 9th and Superior was St. John's Cathedral, and it it's still there. It's still standing there. However, at East 17th and Superior was St. Peter's, which was German. East 26th and Superior was St. Columkill's, uh, which was Irish. East 32nd and Superior was St. Ant- uh, Josephat's, which was Polish. East 41st in Superior was a American Conception, which was Irish, but a different county of Ireland. I mean, people from Mayo (laughs) did not want to worship with people from Kildare. Uh, East 52nd was St. Andrews, which was Slovak. East 61st was St. George's, which was Lithuanian. East 71st was St. Francis, which was German. East 90th was St. Thomas Aquinas, which supposedly was territorial, but which was really Irish. Then just go up the street a little bit, maybe about a half a mile on St. Clair Avenue. East 40th was St. Paul's, which was Croatian. East 61st, St. Vitus, which was, uh, which was Slovenian. And then finally on uh, about 90th in St. Clair was St. Philip Neri, which was um, Irish. And then right in the middle of that, between Superior and Edward, was St. Casimir's, which was Polish. Within a two-mile region, two, two to three-mile region, you had 14 Catholic churches, all of whom had their own schools, their own rectories, and their own church building. But they were all formed by different nationality groups. And, of course, much of that is what we're, we were dealing with during these, these past couple of years. So it's interesting watching that. One of the, the things about these parishes, too, is... Um, is what, what's very interesting is the sacrifices that people make to build their churches. Um, some of these sacrifices, you know, these were people who were desperately poor. I mean, you know, these were immigrants who were, were you know, two or three years off the boat. And they built these magnificent churches Uh, An example of that is right down here at St. Bernard's. Now, granted, the building of their present church only took place the beginning of the 20th century, 1901 to 1905, but those were not wealthy people, and yet they built this magnificent church that I'm sure many of you have seen. If you haven't, you you should see it. It's it's one of the magnificent churches in the diocese. In the city of Cleveland, uh, the Polish, uh, in 1889, built St. Stanislaus Church. And St. Stanislaus, when it was built, cost $150,000. Now realize, $150,000 in, in 1889, that was an enormous amount of money. That would be several million dollars today. Um, and the average parishioner at St. Stanislaus was working at the Newburg Rolling Mills, the steel mills, and was earning $7.75 a week. And yet they put the money together and they built this magnificent church um, at St. Patrick's in Cleveland, which is the mother church of the Irish. Uh, the people themselves built the church. And the way they did it is they went out to a stone quarry in Sandusky and they cut the stone. They loaded it on wagons and they brought the stone back. And then they put the stone in in building this building, this church, which is still standing today. Each journey to the stone quarry took about a week, maybe a little more than a week, that they'd have to go and bring that stone back and then quarry it and put it into the building. And, of course, St. Patrick's is the mother church of Irish in the city of Cleveland. So there's this um, this great sacrifice which takes place. Now, when you stop and think... That these were voluntary communities. There were people coming together, asking for a priest. They bonded together. And then they made these great sacrifices for building a church. You can understand the depth of loyalty that these people would have for their their parish and for their church. And we see remnants of that even today. How many people, when their parish was being closed, said, My grandparents built this. My great-grandparents built that. That loyalty is still there. There was one other thing that, that uh, generated the, the loyalty, and uh, this was the fact that um, ethnicity has been uh, a tremendous blessing for the Diocese of Cleveland. I mean, you, you consider all of the ethnic traditions that we have. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever given a, a potkey uh at Easter or at Christmas, if some of you know what that is, uh, the St. Patrick's Day parade, the... Um, uh, the, the festivals that are connected with Italian parishes, the processions. In Cleveland, of course, it's the feast on Murray Hill, that which is a big, big thing there. Uh, these are all wonderful, wonderful traditions. The blessing of food on Holy Saturday. Have ever, any of you ever uh, done that, brought the food in? Uh, I came from an area that was Italian and Irish. And when I was ordained, I was assigned out to Parma. And Parma was, uh, you know, it was... Slovaks, Slovenians, but predominantly Polish, a lot of Polish out in Parma. I had never seen this. And so the first Holy Saturday, I'm there, the pastor says to me, he says, uh, come on over, I'm going to show you how to bless food. Uh, well, I walked in, and the place was, it was amazing. The place was filled, jammed. All these women had these these baskets with little white cloths on them. You know, it was, it was, it was just truly amazing. And uh, my first pastor was just a real character. And so he said, he, said, he says, watch what I do. And so uh, so I watched what he did. And he, he blessed the food. And he was kind of a gruff guy. And he, went, oh, and he gave the blessing. And then he proceeds to sprinkle the Holy One. He walks down. And as he would go down, he'd reach in, grab a sausage. <laughs> take it out, take a bite out of it. And then he put it back. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing that. Uh, but, but And the people loved that because they knew what a character he was. Uh, but I'd never saw that before. But that's a beautiful tradition, you know, a beautiful tradition. All of these are coming from the nationality groups that we have. However, at times, the groups have not gotten along. And there has been a great deal of tension within, uh, within the diocese. Um, there was great tension between the Germans and the Irish. Originally, uh, the Irish considered the Germans uh, to be foreigners. Uh, in the Irish view, uh, if you had an accent, you were a foreigner, unless the accent was a brogue. If you were a brogue, you, if you had a brogue, you were truly American. Uh, the Germans considered the Irish to be culturally inferior. Uh, you know, they said, "Well, what did you ever do besides grow a potato?" You know, and uh, and they also said the Irish were excessively nationalistic, and there was some truth in that. Um, one of the uh, Irish movements at that time was what was called the Fenians, and the Fenians were kind of a um, kind of a prelude to the IRA, although not quite the same thing. But they were kind of a violent type of movement. And what happened among the Irish uh, in Cleveland is that the Fenians were using the basement of a macro-conception church on Superior Avenue to store guns. And their plan was they were going to take these guns, go up and conquer Canada, and then trade Canada to England for Ireland. That was their plan. (laughs) They're going to go up and conquer Canada. Uh, Their boat got out in the middle of Lake Erie and it sank. The Coast Guard came and arrested them all, and you know, so they they never did that. Uh, but when the, when the Germans say the Irish are excessively nationalistic, um, they they weren't they weren't kidding there. I mean, the Irish were somewhat nationalistic as they still are. Uh, if if you have Irish friends, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but these groups went at one another tooth and nail at St. Vincent's Church in Akron. Um, uh, which was founded originally as an Irish church. And, of course, uh, you know, the the high school still keeps the name, the Irish. Uh, And um, originally it was Irish, but as time went on, Germans began moving into the Akron area. And the Germans began to attend at Immaculate Conception, or at at, uh, St. Vincent's. Now, the problem was Rapp recognized, you know, here are these people. They, uh, you know, they, they can't, you know, they, they need someone who can relate to them in their own language. And so what he did is he appointed the St. Vincent's a bilingual priest, a priest who spoke both German and Irish. Uh, the first Sunday the band had mass, the Irish rioted. And uh, they, they caused so much of a commotion that the the mass uh, could not go on. And that happened the second Sunday. And so finally, Rapp said, well, you know, that's not going to work. And so the result of that was finally they they decided, well, the Germans would form their own parish, which they did at St. Bernard's. Now, you will notice when the Germans built their church, their big church, uh, in 1901, it was much bigger than St. Vincent's. It was the German revenge. The church was much bigger than St. Vincent's would be. Um, it's interesting that in Valley City, uh, which was in the, the country, uh, both the Germans and the Irish were needed to build the church. Uh, but the arrangement was that the trustees from they had two sets of trustees from the different nationality groups, whoever got the church first on Sunday claimed the church. So if you were German, you got there at first on Sunday, it was your church for the day, and the Irish were not welcome. And if the Irish got there first, the Irish claimed the church and the Germans uh, were not welcome. So, you know, you have all of these things going on. This, this countless um, fighting between the Germans and the Irish. And it was particularly bad whenever a bishop, whenever the Episcopal See was vacant. Whenever, in other words, whenever a bishop would die and they're choosing another bishop, uh, the Germans and the Irish would go at one another tooth and nail. They each try to get their own person chosen by Rome. And they'd have all sorts of machinations that they'd go through in order to try to do that. The result was, apparently, from what we can tell, Rome decided we will alternate bishops. Therefore, if you look at the bishops in Cleveland, we had Rapp, who was French, Gilmar, who was Scottish, Horseman who was German, Fairley, who was Irish, Schrems, who was German, Holben who was Irish, Isaman, who was German, Hickey, who was Irish, and then we got an Italian. Okay? I guess that's, that's the, happy, the happy medium. But now, of course, we've gone back to an Irishman again. So these groups, again, there was a great deal of infighting among these people. And this will also happen among the newer ethnic groups when they will come in. A number of the ethnic groups will fight with the bishops. We have a number of schisms taking place in the diocese. You have a number of parishes being you know, being placed under interdict. And as late as 1940, at Holy Redeemer Parish in Collinwood area in Cleveland, we had Holy Redeemer Parish being placed under interdict. And the reason for that was, was because of nationality grounds. So our ethnicity has been a strong point, but it's also caused a great deal of tension. Now, let me just bring this up to a point, and then we'll kind of take a stretch break, or at least break. Um, I mentioned how uh, there's a community among these people. They banded together, they built a church, and now they have fought against other ethnic groups. These are very, very close-knit communities and very loyal to their parish. But there's a flip side to that. Um, Bishop Lennon tells the story that when he goes throughout the diocese, he's he's often asked the question, uh, how many churches are there in the Diocese of Cleveland? His response is, there's one. There's one church. Uh, There might be many church buildings, but there is only one church. And so with all of this emphasis upon one's own individual parish, uh, upon the building of parishes, churches, and tight-knit communities, there's an isolation that develops between different parishes. We have a very hard time working together. We have a very hard time cooperating. And that was part of what the Vibrant Parish process was all about, to try to develop ways of working together. Uh, and that was a very difficult thing. The third period I wanted to talk about was the what, what I'm calling the period of organization. On, a, on February 16, 1909, uh, John Patrick Fairley, uh, who at that time was the spiritual director of the North American College in Rome, was appointed the, uh, the, the, the fourth bishop of Cleveland. And what Fairley brought to Cleveland, he brought a kind of a penchant for organization. Um, one of the interesting things is that really up to about 1910, uh, the Diocese of Cleveland was really kind of loosely organized. There, there was kind of a, a gentle chaos about it in, in many ways, and I'm not sure it hasn't always been that way, but at least Fairley made an effort to bring organization. And Fairly had the, the concept of the pyramid authority, pyramid of, of authority. Of course, he was at the top, and all authority came down from the bishop. And so what he did is he organized the diocese very systematically. Uh, he centralized the school system under uh, Father William Kane, And for the first time, we had an, an organized school system of parochial schools in the Diocese of Cleveland. He did the very same thing with uh, Catholic Charities. Um, Catholic Charities up to 1910 was was really very disorganized. The way that uh, the nuns raised money for orphanages and hospitals and things like that, they simply went into parishes, and kind of like the Little Sisters of the Poor do today, they stood at the door and people would give it. Or they organized what you would call orphan fairs, and those were uh, kind of like festivals. And that was the way that money was raised. But what Fairley does is he centralizes all of the charities under... Uh, Father Hubert LeBlond, uh, who was a professional social worker, and he introduced centralized funding. Uh, You would now, we we do many of the things we do today in terms of raising money for Catholic charities, the appeal, um, the letters, things like that, much more organized. And he also organized the the, the beginnings of parishes. Uh, Now the diocesan administration would establish parishes, They would be the ones who would appoint the pastor, who would go out to organize the people. They would be the ones, the the administration would be the one that would set the boundaries of parishes. And so you no longer have that idea of groups of people coming together, forming community, asking for a pastor. You now have the system that we now have in place at the present time. What you begin to see is expansion. Uh, The diocese begins to expand outward from the cities. Uh, in uh, Cleveland, for example, Euclid uh, began to burst. And you had a number of parishes being appointed out there, in there, up into the Heights, uh, where Jesu and St. Anne's came into existence. On the west side, people were moving out along the lake. In Akron, you had a whole variety of new parishes being established, uh, some of which were already established long before uh, Bishop Fairley came. For example... Uh, St. Mary's Parish was organized in 1887. Uh, St. John the Baptist, which was Slovak, uh, and Annunciation, which was territorial, were both organized in 1907. St. Hedwig's, which was Polish, was 1912. Sacred Heart, which was Hungarian, in 1915. Then St. Peter's in 1917. You even had the Melkite Rite opening a church, St. Joseph Church, in 1915. But this growth continues on after the First World War. Um, You have St. Martha's and St. Paul's, both being opened in 1919. And and in 1923, your own parish here opened under Father John Waldheisen. Um, St. Sebastian's in 1928. uh, St. Anthony's, which was Italian, in 1933. Christ the King in 1935, which was Croatian. So you, you have this, this tremendous growth beginning to take place. In uh, the 1920s were a prosperous period, and so you have large churches being built during the 1920s. That all comes to a halt with the depression. It all comes to a halt during the depression. Uh, a number of parishes, this was a very traumatic time for the church as well as for all Americans. A number of parishes uh, went into default although none of the parishes was taken over by the banks. I mean, the banks were unpopular enough. They didn't need to become even more unpopular by taking over a church. And what would they even do with it if they did take it over? But parishes were in default. In a number of parishes, priests and nuns were not paid salaries for a significant period of time. For example, your pastor here at Immaculate Conception, Father Waldheisen, uh, did not take a salary for a, a certain period of time. Uh, you know, there was simply no money to pay him, so he couldn't take a salary for himself. Um, so you had all of this taking place in the 30s. Again, we had built in the 20s, and now we have all this, this debt that is present there in the 1930s and no ways in which to deal with it. Um, many parishes uh, organized their own system of charity. Um, there's one parish in Cleveland that literally uh, rented out, or didn't run out, it, it opened up its um, its... It's, I guess you would call it its backyard uh, for tending of sheep. And they would use what would come from the sheep, you know, the meat that would come from sheep to help feed some of the people in the parishes. Uh, parishes did tremendously creative things in trying to help deal with the effects of the Depression. What were parishes like in the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s? Um, one of the things that is surprising today. Uh, is, at least it always amazes me when I go to parishes that were open during that time, is how small the parking lots were. Uh, You have that here to a degree, but believe me, your parking lot here is spacious compared to some of the other churches uh, throughout the diocese. But the explanation for that was people didn't drive. They simply walked the church. That was more common. The parishes were neighborhood churches, and you simply walked the church. Uh, in the, you know, for mass and for its services. Um, the school was very important. Uh, even in the midst of the Depression, schools were kept open. And uh, you also have, in the 1930s, the initial beginnings of what they called in those days the CC- CCD programs, which, of course, were the, um, the prelude to, to PSR. Um, it's interesting that the schools were taught almost exclusively by women religious. You had very, very few uh, what we call lay teachers teaching in the schools at that time. And you have some of the larger orders. um, For example, in Cleveland, Ursulines, Notre Dames, they had many of the schools uh, in Akron, the the Dominicans, the Sisters of the Humility of Mary, uh, the Charities of St. Augustine, the Vincentians. I don't know. Who taught school down at Immaculate Conception? St. Joseph's Sisters, yeah. They had a number of parishes down here. Um, so, you, 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 you know, it was interesting in those days. And, of course, the classes might be 60 children in a class, you know what I mean? Um, but, but, again, the nuns were pretty tough. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, again, it was a different era in a way, too. I mean, children I don't think were quite as energetic in those days as they are today. That's a polite way of saying it. But, you know, uh, uh, you know it was a little bit different in those days. Parish policy was exclusively in the hands of the parish priest. Um, there, he might consult uh, with a, a few individuals, but there were no such things as parish councils. Uh, there were no such things as finance councils. Uh, the role of the laity basically was to pay, pray, and obey. Uh, and, and that was kind of what you had there in those days. Um, pastors were often giants in their own communities, and let me tell you, you have that in Akron. You have some of the real giants in the history of the diocese uh, who were pastors here during the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. People like uh, Father Monsignor Dowd. And most of them were Monsignors. Monsignor Dowd at Annunciation, Father Boki at St. Paul's, uh, Monsignor Swiskler at St. Sebastian's, uh, Father Salvatore Marino, and later Monsignor Angelo Trivisano at St. Anthony's. Uh, Monsignor Joseph O'Keefe at St. Mary's, uh, Monsignor John McKeever at St. Martha's, and Father waltheisen here uh, at Mac Conception. He was a giant. Uh, you might not have thought so, but he was a giant. He was very, he was very, very influential in terms of the Diocese of Cleveland. Uh, and these were men who were pastors in parishes for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, it was like they never left. And they became so identified with the parish. Um, they were there for a long period of time. Most parishes, even the smaller ones, uh, had a number of priests. My home parish in Cleveland, in East Cleveland, was St. Philomena's Parish. And St. Philomena's was probably, probably about 2,500 to 3,000 families, which was fairly large at that time. We had five priests. We had a man who was in residence. We had a pastor. And we had three associates. Uh, all of whom were living, uh, you know, were serving the parish uh, to varying degrees. Um, what of the spiritual life of the parishes in the 20s, 30s, and 40s? Well, of course, mass was in Latin. Uh, mass in many parishes was on the hour, At least Sunday mass was, uh, and uh, you would have, um, for example, in my home parish, mass on Sunday morning was at five fifteen, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, and twelve fifteen. And of course, that was long before there was any uh, Saturday evening mass. Um, and <laughs> I laugh when I think about this uh, because of the fact that uh, they had to clear the parking lot. what, what little parking lot there was, they had a cleric. And so, uh, what you had at St. Philomena's was the, the altar was kind of uh, separated from the back wall. Most, many parishes, the, the altar was up against the, the back wall. But in St. Philomena's, it was a separation. So the priest could go into the tabernacle, uh, take the Saboria out of the tabernacle, and they would come out and begin giving out communion after the consecration. So, uh, you know, and it was the weirdest thing because the priest was saying the Mass would keep going. Everyone's coming up for communion. And the only rule was that, that you could not leave the church until he was done with the Mass. But he just kept plowing ahead. And all of us are receiving communion. It wasn't very good liturgically, and eventually it was, uh, it was outlawed. The practice was outlawed. But, but, you know, again, it was, well, we had to clear the parking lot. So we, we did this practice, and Mass would be over in about 35 minutes, the 40 minutes at the absolute most. Um, my home pastor had a, a wonderful practice he did. Um, <laughs> he would walk up and down the aisle during the, the Mass, and he had a rule that the, the, the sermon could not be too long. So he would be walking on. He would take up the collection, too. He'd grab a basket and take up the, help take up the collection. And he would walk up and down the island. Then he would shout out, all right, that's long enough. Go on with the Mass. So the poor priest would have to end the homily and go on with the Mass. Uh, it wasn't the most religious experience in, in, in the world. But it's funny thinking back on that. Those are, those are things. Um, what of the spiritual life of the parishes? Um, there was no liturgical renewal, at least at that point, And yet there, there were signs that a movement was developing. Uh, for example, although the Mass was in Latin, um, you, you did begin to find uh, what they called the Missa Recitata. And that would be you would respond to the priest in, um, in Latin when he like, would say, when, when he, in terms of the responses of the Mass. For example, Dominus Fovisco. Sursum Corda. Ah, good. Somebody still remembers. Uh, but again, that you, you got it. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> uh, but you know that, and that really was, in many ways, the beginning of a beginning of liturgical renewal. You know, your the participation, active participation in in the liturgy. You began to see those signs taking place. Um, not great numbers of people were receiving communion. Uh, and for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, uh, there was the influence of something that was called Jansenism that emphasized the unworthiness of people to receive communion. And even when I was first ordained and went out to Parma, I was surprised. I was running into people in confession who would tell me, and again, I didn't pick it up at first, but people would say, well, I want to go to communion tomorrow, so I came to confession. And you'd hear their confession, and there was no reason why they w- shouldn't be going to communion, even without going to confession. Um, and so I began to, I, I, after a while, I started to ask someone, uh, you know, when's the last time you went to communion? He said, well, the last time I went to confession, that was six months ago, uh, because I was always taught you had to go to confession before you would go to communion. That was part of Jansenism. Uh, now, it wasn't a great number, at least in the six, 1969 it wasn't, but I was surprised there were still some people there. There was also the question of the Eucharistic fast. How many of you remember the old Eucharistic fast? Okay. Well, you fasted from midnight on. Um, I have uh, many, many stories on that. Uh, I always remember when I made First Communion. Um, the, 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 the sister who taught us, uh, prepared us for First Communion, on the Friday before we went home, we made First Communion on Sunday morning. She said, you go home, you tell your mother to wrap the sinks with a white cloth, so that if you get up in the middle of the night and you try to get a glass of water, you can't do that. Because if you drank a sip of water, you could not go to communion, and the next day you'd have to make your first communion the next day. So I went home and told my mother that, and my mother said, the woman's crazy. Uh, she said, you stay in bed. And so I I, I I was too afraid to get up and go to, you know, to the sink. So, uh, but, uh, but uh, one other story on that, too. I always used to laugh. My sister um, always used to, uh, uh, we, we always went, because of the fact I was raised with my cousins, there were nine of them, my brother and my, and my sister and myself, so we were 11 kids. And we were like a circus when we went to church on Sunday morning. I think more people watched us than they watched uh, in terms of attending the mass. But I always remember, my sister, we'd always go to 9 o'clock Mass. We always had, somehow or other, we we inherited a pew, and we always had the same pew. Nobody would dare sit there for 9 o'clock Mass. But uh, my sister always used to say, um, uh, she'd say, uh, as we're going home, she would say, uh, Joan didn't have a date last night. And I'd say, how do you know Joan didn't have a date last night? Well, she went to communion that if she'd had a date, she would have gone out to a restaurant afterwards and had food and couldn't have gone to communion. Uh, so-and-so uh, had a date, you know, because she didn't go to communion. So I wouldn't go, in. but I mean, and I'm saying, Janet, what are you doing during Mass? You know what I mean? This is not the, not the, the purpose of Mass, to see who's, who had a date and who didn't have a date. But, uh, but it was funny that when you talk about the the fast. But again, that was something that, of course, was mitigated in 1951 or 52, 52. And uh, where they, they moved the fast time down to three hours and then, of course, down to the hour. So, um, you know, but that would be a reason why people would not. If you go to a later mass on Sunday in the old days, very few people would go to communion because they couldn't fast that particular particular long. Um, confessions were heavy at that time, especially at Christmas and Easter. And, uh, you know, those were the days when you would confessions for three, four hours straight. And uh, those were uh, interesting days from that point of view. Forty hours was very important in the history of a, in, in the parish devotional life. Um, and in, in, in many ways, this was, was kind of one of the, the times of renewal for a parish, was a celebration of annual Eucharistic devotions. Many parishes sponsored parish missions. And uh, parish missions, the um, purpose of many of the, the talks was to get people to go to confession. And so sometimes the talks at parish missions tended to be hell and brimstone talks. Uh, I can always remember my, my uh, because I was younger than some of the other kids, the older kids had to go to the parish mission. And they came home and they told me, you're going to go to hell. Uh, everything the missionary mentioned, you do. He said, oh, my God, you know, I'm eight years old. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I, oh, you know, uh, that, that was what they said. Um, there was great emphasis on the venus. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember uh, the Sorrowful Mother, novena, which was very popular, especially during the war and the post-war period, because there were many sorrowful mothers. There were mothers who had lost children in the war, or there were mothers who were worried to death about their sons and even their daughters who were overseas in the, in the military. And those were very popular devotions, St. Jude, St. Teresa, Miraculous Medal. All of those things were very, very important, novenas. Uh, coming into existence in the 1930s was the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization. And uh, what brought this, and it wasn't much of an organization at that time. What, what the parishes did is they simply opened up rooms like this to young people. And now uh, it, it would be supervised. But remember, in the Depression, there was no money for kids to spend. So they were desperately looking for a place to get together. Uh, to dance, to listen to music, whatever, whatever you did in the 1930s. They were looking for enough. An op- and parishes did that. They opened their doors to them, and eventually you began to have a systematic program beginning to develop. Uh, CYO sports, camping, uh, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, uh, Cub Scouts, all of those things uh, came into existence as part of the CYO program. But it begins very simply, simply saying, we got, we've got a room. Uh, kids have no money to spend, so therefore, come on over. And you know, um, you know, you can dance, you can play records, whatever you did in the 1930s, you can do. So it began in a very, very small way. Um, which brings me to the last period, the period of the, the post-war period, basically 1945 to 2008. And one of the things that happens during this period, uh, and um, it's difficult for us to understand this today. But Catholics begin moving up the ladder economically, okay? Uh, Now, I think we're so used to thinking of ourselves as middle class, and in your suburban parishes, some of them, upper middle class, that we forget that up until the war, Catholics were, we were the lower class. I mean, who's working in the steel mills? It's Catholics. Who's working in the auto industry? It's Catholics. We're doing all of that—that that, you know, those the, the non-white collar jobs. Uh, sure, there were some professionals. I mean, we had doctors, we had some lawyers, but by and large, most of the uh, the Catholic population was blue collar. But that begins to change after the Second World War. Um, there's a historian out of Notre Dame by the name of Jay Dolan who has a. He asked the question. He says. What is the most important thing that happened in American Catholicism uh, since the Second World War? Um, Now, most people would say, well, the Second Vatican Council. He says, no, the GI Bill, the GI Bill, because American servicemen, Catholic servicemen fought in the war. And at the end of the war, a grateful country extended many benefits to the servicemen coming back, To enable them to go to college, enable them to get homes, all of this begins to take place. And what you see is that Catholics begin to plug into this, big time. And so we have many Catholics now going to college who had never been, you know, Catholics weren't that numerous in college. We have Catholic colleges but you didn't have great numbers of Catholics going to college, now you begin to see that changing. And what happens? People begin moving up economically. They begin to enter into the business class. They begin to enter into management. They begin to enter into the professions. And you have Catholics in greater numbers ascending the scale economically. One of the interesting facts, and it's really an interesting fact, is that Catholics today have the second largest gross income of Americans. The only group higher than us, anyone know? Jews. Yeah, the Jewish people have a higher gross income. Catholics are next on the scale. We're higher than Episcopalians. They don't like that, but we are. Uh, you know, uh, we're higher than the Methodists, the Presbyterians. And that's remarkable when you consider that that really has taken place since 1945, this tremendous growth. Now, I mean, does that mean we're holier people? Not not necessarily, probably not. But, but, you know, there was a change that began to take place here uh, in the post-war period. And you find in the post-war period, uh, because of the increased prosperity that Catholics are experiencing, we now start moving out. We're moving into suburban areas. We're moving into developing communities. Um, The period between 1945 and 1980 was a period of phenomenal growth in the Diocese of Cleveland. Um, the man who was bishop during that time for most of the period was Archbishop Edward Holbin. Uh, Holbin came, um, came to Cleveland in 1943 as coadjutor to Bishop Shrems. When Shrems died in 45, Holbin took over as the, as the head of the diocese. Uh, from 1945 to 1980, pardon me, 1966, pardon me, 1943 to 1966, the population of Catholics during Hoban's time increased from 400,000 to 870,000 in the Diocese of Cleveland. That's greater than 100% growth, uh, that, probably about 125% growth uh, of Catholics in the Diocese of Cleveland during that time. Hoban founded 61 new parishes. Uh, he dedicated 63 new elementary schools, 16 new high schools. The school population expanded from 50,000 Uh, in 1943 to 137,000 in 1966, when Holbin died. Um, That was 110,000 in elementary schools, uh, 27,000 in high schools. Extensive building projects during this time. Um, You have places like Boreal Seminary, Holy Family Cancer Home, uh, the Home for the Little Sisters of the Poor, Uh, the St. Joseph Christian Life Center was purchased, Holbin High School was opened. Um, the cathedral was renovated. Uh, Parmadale at uh, the orphanage was expanded. There were resident camps in Bath and in, uh, Madison. Both of those were open during that time. Three new cemeteries were opened during Hoban's years. Uh, All Saints, All Souls in, in Chardon, and Holy Cross Cemetery, Cemetery on the west side of Cleveland. And there was so much more that begins to take place during that period of time. Um, you find, uh, Certain parts of the diocese are expanding at a phenomenal rate. Uh, in Euclid, uh, three new parishes were opened in five years. Uh, in um, Parma, you had within a seven-year period you have five parishes being opened uh, during that period of time. Uh, you look down here in Summit County, the growth. Uh, for example, what opened during these years? St. Cosmas and Damien opened in uh, in St. Eugene's in the Falls, both opened in 1963. Guardian Angels in Copley, uh, Queen of Heaven in Green, St. Victor's in Richfield, all in 1964, Our Lady of Guadalupe in 1967, Nativity of the Lord Jesus in 1977, uh, St. Andrew's in and Norton had been opened in 1951, Immaculate Heart of Mary in the Falls in 1952. All of this phenomenal growth is taking place during this period of time. Uh, the freeways increased mobility uh, did you ever stop and think of what it was like to, to live in an area in the 1950s or 40s without the freeways being there um, for example uh, when my sister began dating a fellow who lived in Parma my mother was horrified she said we'll never see you again uh, you know no I don't know if she was glad or not but I was kind of glad but uh, I don't know but she was horrified She said we'll, we'll never you know take us uh, it takes a half a day to get out to Parma Well, it really didn't. It was an exaggeration. That's what she said. Then the freeways opened up, and whoop, we're there. You know what I mean? It was was just phenomenal. Uh, You consider the expansion of I-77, I-71, the freeways that you have out here. uh, What did I come across on today? Uh, 224 West, uh, uh, 277. All of those are products of recent years. And just think how that opened up things. In uh, the Cleveland area, Lake and Geauga counties were; those were the, uh, that was country. You'd never even thought of moving out there, and yet now with freeways connecting them, there's this mass exodus out the Lake and Geauga County. They grow at a phenomenal rate. Same thing in, in the Summit County area. People begin moving out into the expanding areas. However, that has a flip side, and the flip side is the traditional city parishes. Uh, begin to lose members, and they begin to enter into kind of a state of decline. Um, parishes, uh, some parishes are rapidly losing parishioners. On the east side of Cleveland, there was that great demographic change, and what would have been tr- traditionally been the great parishes of the east side now are losing membership at a phenomenal rate, and many of these are parishes that were closed uh, in recent years. Um you see the same thing down in Akron. Many of the, down here in Akron, many of these traditional parishes are losing members at a very, very high rate. So this phenomenon was taking place. Um, and then, of course, as time goes on, you have the inner ring of suburbs. They begin to lose parishioners as they begin to move out even further into suburban areas, in distant areas. So there's a whole change that takes place here during this period of time. The second thing about, the, about these new parishes that begin to develop, one of the blessings of the older parishes, uh, and, and I'm sure you know this here uh, because, you know, it's uh, Conception has traditionally been a smaller parish, but there is close-knit community in, in, these, in these traditional city parishes. Now you have people moving out in the parishes where there are three, 4,000 families. How do you develop that same kind of intimacy, that same kind of community, that same kind of closeness? Some parishes have, have done that reasonably well, but what, what was lost there was that intimacy that you had in the smaller city parishes, the more traditional parishes, and how do you recapture that? How do you recapture that? Um, so all of these things are, are taking place. Uh, someone once described these newer suburban parishes as being sacramental filling stations. Uh, you know, you go in on Saturday and Sunday morning, uh, you get the sacraments, and then you don't see people for another week. Uh, whereas that was not necessarily the case of some of the older city parishes. The 1960s, of course, saw the the Second Vatican Council and the impact of the Council on the life of the Church. Um, there are those who, who constantly who talk a great deal about the chaos after the the second vatican council and undoubtedly there there was a certain amount of that Uh, change is never easy and changes uh were not always explained as well as they might have been i always remember my first pastor whenever we'd make a change he would get up and say well you're not going to like this but we're going to do it they say we have to do it, whoever the mysterious they were. But uh, and of course, the people wouldn't like. And then you have to try to explain why we're doing this. And so that was, a, that was kind of a kind of a, a difficulty. Um, you know, so that was taking place. Um, but, you know, by and large, I, I, I don't think people like – I don't think people disliked the changes that took place. Uh, you know, nobody is clamoring to go back to Meatless Friday's. Uh, nobody, I think, is clamoring to, uh, um, you know, have the the Sunday fast lasting from midnight until uh, God knows when you went to communion. Um, One of the interesting things, I think the the Tridentine liturgy obviously has an appeal, and yet there are many people who still like saying the Mass in English and being able to sing, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Uh, So, you know, there, you know... By and large, I think people plugged into the change. And, of course, now they're pretty, uh, they're, they're fairly well accepted. Lectors at Mass, um, Eucharistic ministers, hospitality ministers, uh, they've been well accepted. Uh, and there are many people who feel very honored to play those roles uh, and to carry out these roles very, very well. Uh, Saturday evening Masses have been very well accepted. Uh, I don't think there's anyone who wants to do away with Saturday night Masses anymore. Um, you know, I, I, again, I remember my first pastor, he said, when we heard we were going to do this, he says, oh, he said, the older people will never come. They'll never like that. They won't come on Saturday night. The very first week, it was senior citizens wall to wall. You know what I mean? And I think they've accepted that. You know, they're often, in some parishes, they're, uh, they're the primary people who are there. Uh, people like pastoral ministers, by and large. And they accept them, and they recognize the role that they have played. And people see parish councils, finance councils, as being very good things, uh, and they feel that people themselves should be involved in the running of the parish, and that there are channels in which input can be made. Okay, now the period after 1970, um, really, really after 1980, has seen uh, very dramatic changes in the church. Obviously. Uh, the sexual abuse crisis is something that, we're, um, that caused great harm, and it's something that we're, we're still dealing with. And, but even before then, uh, there were real challenges. Uh, there's been a drastic decline in the number of people going to confession. Um, you know, and, um, again, there's been a decline in vocations. Uh, when, I was, when I first entered the seminary uh, in my class at, at Borromeo, we had 70 students, my, my own class. We had more than 200 guys in Borromeo Seminary. When I was ordained, there were 25 people in my class. When Father Michael Smith was ordained, I believe there were another 25, 26 in his class. Those were big classes. Last year, we ordained two. And this year we will ordain five for the Diocese of Cleveland. Hopefully, we will ordain five for the Diocese of Cleveland. So vocations are down are down drastically, and um, you know again, what are the reasons for that? You know, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think there are a whole variety of reasons that are out there, but the fact is we're faced with that particular particular situation. Catholics no longer attend weekend liturgies as much as they used to. It 's estimated that in the 1950s uh, Catholics attending, popu- uh, attending Sunday Mass was probably between seventy and seventy five percent the mid 1950s. now we 're hovering somewhere between twenty five and thirty percent. I think the last percent I heard and this kind of varies um, I think it's twenty eight percent. Um, many people uh, still consider them to be Catholics, themselves to be Catholic but they simply don't go to Sunday Mass. And, of course, there are some people who have left. Um, why? Well, there are many reasons that are given. Um, you know, it's a very complex topic that you can't settle in one generations of faith. Some claim that it's the result of the Vatican Council and that the laxity that the Vatican Council brought into the Church. But I'm not sure that you can really establish that definitively. Um, you know, I think that's very very hard to, to uh Established people don't seem people who are indifferent, don't seem to be angry because they can now eat fish on Friday, uh, nor do they seem to be angry that the liturgy isn't in the vernacular. Some are, but most I think are not. Um, there are those in the church who blame it on secularism, individualism, uh, materialism, and undoubtedly those things have all played a role in this. Uh, and uh, you know, and many blame the eels on the uh you know, it's in society on the media, and again, I don't think the media has often been our, our real friends. Um, but some say the Church needs to minister to people in different ways than in the past, uh, that today there are different needs, different demands uh, than there were in years gone by, and these need to be responded to. Now, it's in the midst of all this that the diocese began the process of vibrant parish life and at the very heart of vibrant parish life in the clustering were certain questions amidst the diminishing resources financial uh, personnel amid declining numbers in the city and the inner ring suburbs how can we be more effective as a church how can we how can the church serve its people in ways that are effective realistic and efficient how can the church minister more effectively That is the key question. It's always been the key question, and it's a question that we had to deal. We're trying to deal with at the present time. Now, this process called for people to be honest. Called for parishes to be honest about themselves. Um, It also called for them to recognize we are part of a larger church. It's not just our own individual little parish. We're part of a larger church that is faced with challenges, some of which are very serious in terms of priest and religious personnel, in terms of financial realities? How can parishes work together? Uh, from what I can tell, you've done a wonderful job down here of working together with St. Augustine's. Um, you know I'm sure it wasn't easy. I'm sure there's always tensions. But, but by and large, what you've done, his, from what I can see, seems to be very, very good. Um, there were other difficult questions here, though. How can we deal with and creatively deal with the crisis before us? How can we preserve what is good in our parish life? Uh, Ultimately, it came back to the same question. How do we minister more effectively? Now, the process, obviously, you you read the newspapers, I read the newspaper. We know know what's been going on. Uh, It led to the closing and the merging of a, a good number of parishes in the diocese. And this has been very difficult and very, very painful. Um, it's been a painful process, and apparently the controversy is not over yet. Uh, we, there's still the, the St. Peter question in Cleveland that we're still trying to deal with. Uh, a number of merges, mergers seem to be working out very well, um, and others to a lesser extent, a lesser degree. Um People, uh, you know, developing working relationships involve complexities. And those, I think, sometimes only develop, dealing with them only develops over a period of time. So to give a definitive evaluation of what happened, say it was good, it was bad, you know, I think it's much too early to do that. We'll only tell that later on. Have we lost people in this whole process? Um, There are stories that we have. Uh, that many no longer go to church at all, but we don 't have any statistical data on this, and, and it 's kind of like it 's kind of like uh, the stories are there, how realistic are they there 's been no study that has really been done at this particular time. but what, what you can 't doubt is that there has been bitterness and there is anger on the part of a number of people, and they express it uh, very vocally. So as we approach the end of our one hundred and sixty third year in existence. The Diocese of Cleveland is faced with many problems and many challenges. But I also think uh, that as we deal with these challenges, uh, we can also be people of hope. Uh, our hope is ultimately obvious and obviously based on our belief in God's presence in our lives and in our church. But I also think it's an awareness, it's based on an awareness of how we've responded to so many challenges in the past, uh, the challenge of forming communities and building building churches in our early days, uh, the challenge of intense anti-Catholicism, which at times has been very vocal and very threatening, at other times has been beneath the surface, uh, the challenging a challenge of ministering to large numbers of immigrants uh, who brought cultures and languages languages that we were totally unfamiliar with. Uh, The challenge of uh, surviving the Depression, administering to people uh, who were hungry and who were struggling with tremendous financial difficulties. Um, The the whole question, the challenge of post-World War II expansion. The challenge of implementing Vatican II. All of these have been challenges that we've dealt with in the past. And we've dealt with them reasonably well. And so... We've developed in the past many creative programs and ministries to meet people's needs. There's been so much dedication, so much commitment shown by so many people. And when you consider all of this, when we consider what we have done in the years gone by, it strikes me that this should give us some hope as we turn and as we face the future. And with that, I'm going to stop talking.